Let me say uh, hello to all of you again, everyone. My name is Kyle. I want to welcome you to Uplift and to the conversation. We are in a series called Cut to the Chase. It's an equipping series from Paul's gospel presentation to Athens from Acts chapter 17. It's 90 seconds. He shares the gospel in 90 seconds. And I just thought the first time I heard that, heard it audibly, not read it, but heard it a month or so ago, that this would be a really good thing to talk about, to spend some time with. What did Paul do? What did he think about? And how did he get it down to 90 seconds? So that's kind of what we're doing. This is the second of four weeks in this series. I want to call your attention to a recent article in the online news magazine. It's actually called The Conversation. That's the name of it. And this article highlighted secular organizations or what many people call atheist churches. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, atheist churches. The writer of the article, her name is Dr. Jackie Frost. She's an assistant professor of sociology at Purdue University, and she's got a rather uh, unique angle. She's studied non-religious, what she calls non-religious communities for the past 10 years, and she actually published about this for the first time in a book in 2017, it was a collection of essays, and she began her chapter with a story of one of these assemblies that she visited. This is what, I'm not going to read it word for word, but this is uh, what she described in the book. She showed up to a basement in Atlanta, Georgia, the basement of a church in 2015, and in the basement there were 80, 80 non-religious people gathered there. They showed up, they grabbed their cups of coffee, they found their seats. There was a band on stage that they were getting ready for the start of the service, and at 9 a.m. sharp, the music started, and it was the song from the 1980s comedy movie, Ghostbusters. People clapped, they danced, they sang along, they had lyrics on the screen so you wouldn't get lost behind the band. And in the song, there's this famous response, who are you going to call? And the people said, Ghostbusters. And what she remarked about that experience, that people were there, they were on their feet, they were smiling, they were looking for people that they knew, and they were generally having a good time. And her response from that book, and even in the article just the past, in the past couple of months in the conversation, was that atheist churches, and she's not judging it, she just says, seem to be doing quite well. A lot of people show up. Dr. Frost has noticed a few things about these atheist churches. First of all, they tend to meet on Sundays. They also have the same structure of a Christian church. They have music, and they have message, and they have community, and they're there. The third thing that she notices is that they celebrate their belief that God does not exist. That's what they generally believe. That's what they celebrate. So the testimonies And the teachings of these atheist churches celebrate rational thinking and secular worldviews. Other sociologists have dubbed these organizations with a couple of phrases as either secular spirituality or a term I think is a little bit better, communal secularity. In fact, in fact, the largest of these atheist churches is a place called Sunday Assembly, and it's got multiple places, multiple chapters. There's no hierarchy necessarily. They're all volunteer organizations, but they actually have a motto, and their motto is this, live better, help often, and wonder more. In fact, Sunday Assembly, 
the largest of these atheist churches, has grown so fast that it's often been called the first atheist megachurch. In fact, you can visit it. I did this week Sunday Assembly's website has prepackaged plans for those who want to begin their own charter of Sunday Assembly. They've got, you can download PowerPoint slides, song suggestions, and suggestions for public readings. At the conclusion of her article in The Conversation, Dr. Frost writes this, as rates of religious affiliation continue to decline, many scholars and pundits have argued that there will be a decline in community engagement and other important indicators of well-being, such as health and happiness and people's sense of meaning and purpose. However, atheist churches are an example of how non-religious Americans are finding new ways to meet those needs. Now, I tell you this, I tell you this, because I want you to think about this for the next few moments. When we read from the church's own history book, the Acts of the Apostles, and especially Paul's impression of the city of Athens. This is from Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for his companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We talked in our last message about the Athens that Paul saw. If you missed that one, you can find it on our website, on our podcast, or even on YouTube. We talked about how Athens diminished importance in the world, how that might have fueled some of this. We, we talked about it being a city with at least 30,000 statues of gods in a city of only 10,000 people. And we talked about Paul's impression of those idols. That's what disturbed him. It wasn't what he physically saw, but what he understood about them. I want to read to you a quote from Baptist pastor Willie James Jennings, who wrote a commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. This is, and I love it, this is what he wrote about what Paul saw in Athens. Paul is caught up in the spirit who is doing something new with Israel's ancient understanding of idol production. And this is why I wanted to read this quote to you, by the way, because of his definition of an idol. The idol is a collective self deception, a point of facilitation where human fantasy and wish circulating around material realities generate distorted hope. The idol facilitates a hope of control of both my life and the life of the gods, that is to draw the gods into common cause with me for sustaining my life. The production of the idol is the production of the human because through its creation, a self is also created. And through its worship and devotion, that same fabricated self is sustained. That is what disturbed Paul when he saw the forest of idols in Athens. He saw that what people chiseled in the stones, what they made, they worshiped. And he couldn't quite get his head wrapped around this. So for this message and the following two messages, what we're going to do is something really simple. We're going to break down exactly what Paul said. 
And we're going to talk about why he said it the way he did. Now, listen, listen very carefully. Paul brought to Athens a robust belief in Jesus. And what that did is it funneled its way into this very quick, but very profound speech about Jesus. But I want you to hear me say this carefully. I'm not going to put Paul on a pedestal that he can't sustain. And here's the reason why. He was just one of many people who planted churches in the Roman Empire. He was just one. He was just one. In fact, check this out. He wrote the letter of Romans to believers in Rome where there was already a well-established church. He hadn't even been there yet, but there was a church already there. Someone planted that church. When he arrived at the seaport of Puteoli in Italy on his way to Rome as a prisoner, he met with believers who were already there. The, the scope and the spread of the Christian faith had seemingly encompassed all of what we now know as Italy. We know this from the New Testament. Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus on their own, and Apollos preached in both Ephesus in Corinth, and even in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul mentioned that there were other people who preached the gospel. I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because what we read in Acts chapter 17 is it is a recorded presentation of the gospel, but it's also a presentation that other people gave. Other faithful believers gave a presentation of the gospel at different times and in different places, but no less important which means that you and I can do this. That's the point. Not just for Paul. We can do this. Paul isn't alone in this ability. We join the unnamed church planters in Rome and Puteoli and all of Italy. We join Barnabas and Mark and Apollos. Look, it's going to be wrong for us to assume that only Paul was capable of this when nothing could be further from the truth. You and I can do the same thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to discuss Paul's algorithm here. And it's not complex. It's not hard to solve. But I will tell you this, it has tremendous value. And I want to show you this. I think his algorithm is best represented with concentric circles. I want to show you a little graphic here. Now, these concentric circles, we're, we're going to go from out to in, all right? So the largest... And the outermost circle represents the broadest appeal of Paul's gospel presentation. He casts the net widest at the first. He spins, if it's 90 seconds, he spends 30 seconds here. The circles, as they get smaller, as they get more, uh, they, as they get smaller, they get more intimate. And we're gonna talk more about those two circles in the next two weeks. That's a little bit of a cliffhanger. You got to come back. For tonight, for this message, we're going to start with the largest circle because that's where Paul begins, the broadest and widest appeal. So here's what we're going to do. It's actually printed on your order of worship. We're going to read this 90-second speech, and then we're going to talk about this largest circle. It's a rather long section of Scripture. Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, this is a speech to an atheist church. That's what this is. It's to people who don't know Jesus or may not have believed in Jesus. And in doing so, to create some credibility, what Paul does is he starts with the broadest of the appeals found in the first couple of verses. After his introduction where he uses their own nameless statues as a starting part, as a starting point, he talks about God. And this is what he says first. You can't deny God. You can't deny it. You cannot deny God. Now, that seems a little... Uh, simplistic, I think, but and, and it's probably easy to argue that he spoke these words in a city that had no problem with belief in deity, right? 30,000 statues. There was some sort of component built into this city, in this culture, that there was something else. But I, I'm just going to challenge you with this. I think it would be wrong to assume that, because just as you would be wrong to assume that now in our world, belief in God is Pretty normal. Let me show you some statistics here. Current statistics state that from people ages 18 to 34, 59% of Americans in that age bracket say they believe in God, and that sounds a little bit encouraging until you look at the overall data. And then what that data says is that the number, that number itself has caused the decline of overall belief in God in every age to 74%. Look at this, in 2001, 90% of Americans believed in God. We're down to 74% now. We, that's an that's a unbelievable reduction in numbers. Now, this is to me, even so in a, in a city full of idols, there was this infamous statue to the God with no name, right? That's part of this presentation. They knew, even so there, there seemed to be this aimlessness or this, this, uh, this wondering that they were serving themselves with these gods. They knew, in effect, there was something else they didn't know. I think that's rather fascinating. They knew in a rather skewed way that the God of all things, that he's real. God is undeniable even in a forest of idols. And what we do is we find that Paul says that you can't, you can't deny this God. You, you, you even know he's real. You just don't know his name. What's, what's to me fascinating about this is that scripture actually tells us the very basis 
the very baseline point of believability in God. And we find this actually, actually we find it in Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's this one thing, creation. Creation is the baseline for all believability in God. Look in Romans chapter one, verse 20. Paul wrote this for God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, these massive, big things. Paul says they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation. So these abstract ideas about God have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Unbelievable. The abstractness of God, the bigness of God, the mystery of God can be obvious, and it is obvious in the things. Listen, humanity, we've had no participation in the creation of and the assembly of matter. We can't create trees or grass or water or air. We can't create these things from nothing. We don't have the rudimentary ingredients at our disposal to make any of the created elements. That logic is unchallenged in the course of human history. And listen, if we're starting with a broad appeal, listen very carefully. And whether a person believes in the evolution of created things or the intelligent design of created things makes no difference here. Makes no difference. Remember, Paul is beginning with the broadest appeal to, to generate some credibility. The point is that elements exist because they were created to exist and something created them. This is Paul's logical starting point. You cannot deny God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing he says. You can't contain God. You can't contain him. Here's how Paul said it in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, Paul is sharing this speech on Mars Hill, on the Oropagus. Right over the edge of that is the Parthenon. And the Parthenon was a temple in which housed a 40-foot statue of the Greek goddess Athena. I want to show you a recreation of this statue. This looks, from what we can tell, this is actually a recreation from the city of Nashville, where there is a recreation of the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee, and inside that is a statue of Athena. That's where this image comes from. In that Parthenon, where Paul is speaking, in that temple, that temple had been there 500 years when Paul starts his speech. It had already been there half a millennium. And inside the Parthenon, at that moment, was the second statue of Athena, by the way. It wasn't the first. The first one had already been destroyed. She was made of ivory, plated in gold, and that gold was looted throughout the century. It was eventually burned. The second one that was ever created, think about that. They had to create another one. This is the lunacy that Paul's thinking about, right? So in that temple is Athena. What Paul is saying is that very temple, the pride of Athens, is incompatible with the maker of the world who is larger in scope and size than an ivory statue covered with gold. Gold. And let me tell you something. As soon as Paul said this, his words are going to be considered immediately controversial and scandalous. Immediately. But let me just kind of create with us for us a frame of reference. Such an argument is really no different today. We don't, we don't see a lot of statues. People don't worship statues that we can see. But listen, the, the secular belief that we create our own destinies and outcomes is as much of an idol as Athena. Secularism believes that the unknown is containable. 
And what Paul did here with this statement is that he put God into a proper perspective. To the Athenians, gods are large, but only slightly large. Their representations are as large as they can build. But if God made the world, then the world itself is much, much smaller than God. I want to show you a very famous picture. You've probably seen this picture before. It's a photograph called the pale blue dot. And in that pink beam of light, just to the right of center is a very, very tiny, small dot. You may not even be able to see it. Feel free to pull it up on your phones if you need to. It's really a pixel in this image. That pale blue dot is our planet. It's Earth. And it was taken by NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft. Get this, 34 years ago today, on February 14, 1990. And it was taken of Earth from a distance of 3.7 billion miles away. It's turned around and it snapped an image of Earth. Famous American astrophysicist Carl Sagan wrote what I think is the most famous commentary on this photograph of Earth, which was taken at his request, by the way. I want to read to you his quote. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and our suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. I share that picture with you in this quote to remind us of what Paul said. that The, the gods that we build are rather puny in a photograph like this. Only God can do something like this, and you can't contain him. And here's the third thing Paul says about God. You can't serve God. You can't serve God. Look at verse 25. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything. Let me read that again. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, broadest appeal, widest net. Paul is saying that if we think that we serve God, then we think that God needs us. That's the entire premise of idolatry, by the way. But God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. And thinking anything different is really an attempt to 
lesson God. Let me, let me explain this a little bit. This, this verb that Paul uses here, nor is he served by human hands, the Greek word for that word served is the word where we get the word like therapy. And in some places, that same word is translated as to heal. Paul isn't saying that God does not deserve our allegiance or our loyalty. What he is saying is that you can do nothing to enhance God. You can't enhance God. You you can't heal God. You can't fix God. You can't dress him up. You can't appease him. He is perfect. He is unhealable. He is unfixable. And he is infallible for all time. Your allegiance, my allegiance to God does nothing to enhance his glory or his name. His following is not a tribe. It's not a cult. It's not filled with minions. Don't underestimate God by overestimating yourself. That's what Paul is saying. And and listen, as we kind of wrap this up, I want to remind you that, that Paul is talking about God to an audience with whom he had no common ground. None. This is where he started. He starts by saying God is real. You can't deny him. You can't question that something exists outside of us, outside of our existence. And he's so large and he's so powerful. You can't contain him. Your mind can't even contain him. Your imagination, the things that you've created are too pathetic and puny for the God that created everything. And you can't make him better by what you do. This is the common starting ground for the gospel presentation. And my prayer for us right here in this place is really twofold. Number one, that when we talk to people about Jesus, this is where we start. It's a bona fide approach. It's been used for thousands of years, and it's an easy inroad. I think it's pretty fantastic. But also, the second part of this prayer is that I really hope this invigorates us or reinvigorates us to believe this truth, that this mighty, massive, uncontainable, undeniable God is real and he's for you. He's for you. Praise God for that.